Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 809 with Paul Maglione. Paul's got some great perspective on making wise decisions using both data and intuition. So you'll learn one, why we shouldn't disregard intuition. Two, why we make terrible decisions and how to stop. And three, powerful questions that surface brilliant insights. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to bits that we mentioned here, please visit us at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP809. And while you're at Awesome at Your Job, check out some of our goodies like the searchable transcripts of every episode the whole collection of 800 plus episodes tagged by the topic and competency covered, and so much more. Now here's Paul's story. Paul Magione is head of Global Strategic Alliances at Google, where he is developing a growing ecosystem of partners that will unlock the next generation of business value via the cloud and related technologies. Previously at Deloitte and IBM, he is a systems thinker and business builder focused on understanding where technology is headed and answering what it means for a business. He's also an adjunct faculty member at Columbia University. Big thanks to Paul for sharing his wisdom with us. Big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Paul. Paul, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thank you for having me, Pete. I'm so excited to dig into your wisdom. But first, I think we need to hear about your time working as a DJ when you were in college. Oh, geez. Well, this was back before CDs were popular. Okay. I mean, we actually had a record library. So uh, this was carrier current radio. I I didn't do parties. It was uh, college radio. And uh, it was just being at an engineering school. It was a very uh, liberating evening, whether it was Mondays or Tuesdays, depending on the semester. Very liberating evening to go in there and just go into the record library and do your thing. And it was me and a friend, Jim, who maybe will be listening to this. I'll tell him to listen in. And he would go and get every Led Zeppelin album. And then he would say, the rest is up to you. (laughs) So depending on what was happening on a given week, I would manage the programming. And it was a little... It was a little David Letterman-ish uh, <laughs> on the commentary side, but certainly, you know, heavy rock and roll. And it certainly scratched an itch in the midst of all the engineering school. That's funny. Well, when you talk about Led Zeppelin, that reminds Isn't that like the quintessential DJ thing to say? Get the lead out. There you go. Well, he, would, <laughs> he would go and get all the Led Zeppelin and not, not care about anything else. And I said, do you like anything other than let he said, yeah, absolutely. But you, you handle all that. <laughs> That's great. Well, <laughs> 
that's a great system there for decision making right there is that he had a system which was Led Zeppelin and and you had to work a little harder with your that's right. music decision making. That's my fourth segue, Paul. How am I doing? Yeah, pretty uh, good. Pretty good. Yes, it was uh, option one was always locked in and then it was what was the next option? So. All right. Well, so you have codified some of your wisdom in the book, Decisions Over Decibels, Striking the Balance Between Intuition and Information. And can you tell me, when it comes to this decision-making stuff, do you have a particularly surprising or fascinating discovery that you want to share right off the bat? Yeah, I think why this is intriguing to people, and you know, we've spoken to thousands of executives and probably thousands more students as we teach at Columbia University. When I say we, first off, it's myself. And uh, Oded Netzer, who's the vice dean of research at Columbia Business School, and Christopher Frank, who is currently uh, vice president at uh, Amex Market Insights, leading the Market Insights team there. And we've come together over the past seven years, and we teach what we have learned, right? So obviously, there's a heavy dose of theory here, but we're practitioners, we're in the trenches. And so, what we reflect back is what are the practical tools and techniques that lead to better decision-making? And you start to discover that it's a hot topic, but it makes people anxious, right? So mm. we live in a time today when data is exploding, and yet it feels invasive and intimidating. So for a lot of people, data is just not fun. And other people say, I love data, and yeah. then they kind of fumble the football. So in, in reality, we're fortunate to have this staggering amount of information at our fingertips. And yet we often hear people say, but I don't have enough data. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, maybe you're not putting things in perspective. And ultimately, with all this information and all these things that are flowing by, we consistently see poor decision-making and wasted investment, wasted resources at companies, wasted just time and, and effort and so forth. And we took a step back and said, well, why is this? Is it caused by fear or overconfidence or bias? And we realized that with some focus and some of the techniques that we talk about, we can build a tribe of better decision makers and maybe make a dent in all this waste. That's kind of our motivation behind it all. All right. Well, that sounds exciting. And I'd love to, to dig into just that. I mean, I'm intrigued then. Subtitle, you've got striking the balance between intuition and information. We've got boatloads of information when it comes to intuition, first, could you define it for us? And, and what's uh, what's its role here? Yeah, so that's a great question. And the fact is, we are constantly challenged by people saying, so you're going to teach me intuition? Mm. Don't you either have it or don't have it? <laughs> and the answer is, well, people often have intuition and they're not listening to it. And so when you look at what's referred to as the theory of learning, there's competence and complexity, right? So you begin, think as a toddler. You don't know what you don't know. And suddenly you start to put some things together. You start to hear some things and you start to see patterns and you start to learn. And then as you start to learn, you realize there are things that you don't know. So now you're at the next level, right? You're now conscious about your incompetence. Mm -hmm. now, as you progress up this ladder, and there's you know multiple steps along the way, you eventually get to the age of, or to the point of 
a teenage driver, driver for the first time. You are now hopefully consciously competent. You know what your limitations are. You know what's happening around you. And by the time you get to be a seasoned driver, you don't have to think so much when you're making a choice. When you're driving and you're a seasoned driver and there's a snowstorm, right? You might turn down the radio a little bit because you want less input signal. Mm -hmm. But you have a sense and you're sensing with your fingers what's happening. You're sensing all around you. And you might not even sense what's about to happen, but you see up ahead, hey, I remember that when I get to a curve like that in a situation like this with the weather this way, I should probably do the following. Yeah. So there's a sense of acumen that builds up over time. And the fact is, in a business world, we say, no, no, I, I just want the data. Just tell me how much it's snowing. Just tell me the tire pressure. Really, is that all you need to know? Or do you really need to sense and respond in real time and really get a sense for what's happening? And really terrific leaders talk about the fact that they have a feel for the business. So let's take your question and go ask some business leaders, what do you mean by feel for the business? Mm -hmm. They may have different answers, but ultimately it's some level of intuition about their business, how it's impacted by the world, how their business impacts the world. And so this notion of intuition is the companion to all the data that we dive into or that we think we want to dive into. And so the notion is we have to balance that. So rather than make a decision based on just data or based on just gut or intuition, right? Trust your gut. There's another wonderful top gap there by a colleague of ours. What we're saying is that balanced view is what's important and threading that needle and building a toolkit for yourself so you can balance the, the data and the human judgment. That's the path forward. That's beautiful. And I see additional interplay there associated with intuition. If we have hordes of data at our disposal, it can be hard to even know what sorts of analyses to run on that. And, and intuition can serve up fantastic questions for investigation or hypotheses. Like, you know, I have a sense that maybe this is going on. Now let's take a look at the data to see if, in fact, if it is or is not. Yeah. And we hear a lot about data scientists and, well, I need a data scientist to do what? Mm -hmm. Right. At the end of the day, there's a set of people that need to come together to drive a decision. There's the business leader who should be data driven, who should be paying attention to the data, but not only paying attention to the data. There is the data scientist. There is the data engineer who brings all the data together, but there's also a data translator. And that person really ensures that what we're solving for aligns with the business need. Mm -hmm. And we also like to talk about a data artist because at the end of the day, you need to tell a story. Yeah. And you need to compel people to action. And doing that requires you to put all of this in some sort of frame that is understandable and digestible. And so that's kind of a team that comes together to say, listen, yeah, there, there's all these components, but how do I compel people to make a choice? And how did we make the right choice? A lot of great stuff there. 
maybe to to tie some of it together and and launch us, Paul, could you perhaps give us a cool story or case study of a professional who did some great work with both intuition and information to come up with some rock and breakthrough decisions? Well, I don't know if this was a rocking breakthrough decision, but I will tell a personal story about when I was uh, working for a, well, probably at the time, a Fortune 20, maybe Fortune 50 company. Uh, you guys can sort out who that is. And we were investigating whether to work with a heavily backed startup in Silicon Valley. And I was charged with doing the due diligence, the business side of the due diligence. And I had a colleague of mine who was leading the technical due diligence. And after weeks of investigation, we looked and said, you know, this is, I think, a fascinating company, but we're not sure, even after weeks of investigation, because when we got to some detailed questions, they hid behind non-disclosure agreements and you know other issues and so forth. And the technical side, we felt, well, we could probably recreate what they did, but mm-hmm. maybe there was something compelling here that we didn't understand. So maybe we'll take a, a flyer on that and, and give it a shot. On the business side, they kept on telling us, you know what, you're going to have a wildly profitable business if you base your business on our new technology. Now, in hindsight, there were some signals that got my attention. Specifically, they weren't answering questions in much detail. Mm -hmm. And then finally, after pressing them, their business development lead sent me a spreadsheet. And he said, look through this, and you can model out how profitable your business will be based on our technology stack. Okay. And I called them back five minutes later and I said, well, either your spreadsheet is broken or your business is broken. And I, I know I took a provocative approach to my comment there, mm-hmm. but that was built on the intuition that we were all starting to build up the perspective that there was something that wasn't quite right. The spreadsheet, let me describe that for a minute. Mm-hmm. There was a very large Excel with one cell that I was allowed to put a number in. And this was a a business around computing infrastructure, so servers. So there were 10,000 servers in the cell. And it showed, when you did all the math, it showed a wildly profitable business running 10,000 servers. And he said, put in 100,000, put in a million. You're a huge company, you'll just do more. So I put in one server, Mm -hmm. and because I want to understand at the atomic level, yeah, fixed cost, variable cost. Yeah. Well, what, what's the most granular? Word. Scaling. One server, wildly profitable. And I said, oh, that's interesting. So I put in zero servers. Mm-hmm. Wildly profitable. <laughs> so, you know, either they had some magic or yeah. there was something that was wrong. Now, why do I tell this story? At the end of the day, we had data. We had insights. We had spent time with them. But really, it was that blend, as I described before, of a lot of information or seemingly a lot of information, but our intuition telling us we're really not seeing the right information. There's something they're not showing us. And by pushing on that button right there, it opened up a further discussion. We ultimately wound up not doing business with them. That's good. So tell us, how can we become similar Jedi masters, Paul, 
to uh, ha- get that sense of what's missing and how do I push on it and any key questions or frameworks or tactics that get us to making more good decisions more often. Sure, sure. So there are really three fundamental ideas to lean on, I think, behind the book. So leaders have just an enormous amount of data, but we all see it. They're not making better decisions. So why is that? So they're denouncing the data or they're choosing to trust their gut or they're spending so much time trying to get a perfect decision. And they think the the saying data is the new oil. So they're spending as much as they can to build a bigger and better data refinery for that oil. When instead, what leads to a great decision is the balance that we've been talking about. So that's the first thing. Don't lean in to one side or the other, focus on that balance. The second thing is you don't need to be a math whiz to drive great decisions. The smartest person in the room is the person who asks the better question. And that person, that leader, blends information and the intuition and the experience, as we described before, that leads to the better outcomes. Think about it. You're in a meeting and the person who had the factoid, you don't go up to that person (laughs) and say, that was amazing that you had that fact at your fingertips. But the person that asked the question that nobody expected, that insightful thing that cuts right through, that's the person you want to go have coffee with, right? Mm -hmm. And the third thing is, as humans, we are terrible decision makers, and largely because we don't have our bearings. And so one way is to really explore what's happening in a decision in the moment that you make it. And one way to look at it is you're balancing time, risk, and trust. And if you think about that, do I have no time, it's a crisis, or do I have a lot of time? Are you a fireman or are you in Congress? You have a lot of time. Is it a high risk or a low risk situation? Are lives at stake? Are billions at stake? Or is it a throwaway decision? And it's a reversible decision, right? Mm -hmm. Some decisions people agonize over, and yet they're reversible. And then the last part, trust. Do you trust the data? Do you trust the person that gave you the data? Do you trust the organization that stands behind that data? So as you triangulate all those three, that in itself is a framework that should help you make some better decisions. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, we pull all this together and we refer to all of this as quantitative intuition, which is intentionally an oxymoron because you're build- bringing the quant side with the intuitive side. And we define that as the ability to make decisions with incomplete information. And you're using three techniques, precision questioning, contextual analysis, and the synthesis to see the situation clearly. All right. Well, could you perhaps walk us through an example in in which we are applying these principles to an actual decision? Sure. So let's talk about a day in the life of one of your listeners. All right. Because we love your listeners, of course. We sure do. There you go. (laughs) So, So your leader comes in on a Monday or a Tuesday and says, how do we react to this headline from the competitor? (laughs) <laughs> or maybe you're beginning a planning set. Yeah, right? I mean, never happened. My first question is which headline and which yeah. competitor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, but you know, everybody at this moment's thinking this just happened yesterday, uh-huh. right? Or maybe you're beginning a planning cycle for a new product launch. 
or maybe your business is in decline and you're trying to decide where to place the resources that are scarce. So in each case, regardless of your role, if you're in product or sales or marketing or manufacturing, everybody's taught like a bias to action. So they start to jump in. Well, let me go dive in. And what you should be doing is defining what problem you're solving first. Mm -hmm. So put that problem in context. Hey, our competitor announced this. Here's the headline from our competitor. Let's zero in on that one. Well, put it in absolute terms. Put it in context. Absolute terms. Look at it over time and relative to what's going on elsewhere. So the competitor said, I just sold 100 shovels yesterday. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I sold 200 shovels yesterday. Or I sold 200 and the competitor sold 500. While you're busy high-fiving that you sold 200 shovels, mm -hmm. your competitor is walking all over you. By the way, why did that happen? Well, there was a freak snowstorm in July. Okay, so are you going to ba base your business and change your strategy based on an anomaly? No. So what are the assumptions that are going into that decision? Do you believe those assumptions? Is that true? And is it materially important to your business or is it a blip, right? These are kinds of the things that you need to think about, those parameters, and we can go through you know, any number of examples, but I think your listeners are probably living this every day. And through this all, they need to synthesize all these different data points. So we preach a lot about synthesizing. What happens most often is people are in meetings and you're summarizing what you already know or you're summarizing to get to a point that you think the boss has already said, because they've already anchored you somehow with one of their early comments. So synthesize the data points and then go to the data after that, then go to the data, right? So start with those first principles. What is it that we really know? What problem are we solving? Do we really want to grow a product line or are we stable or are we under attack? And then make a, a recommendation after you've set the frame for the problem and then interrogated the data. So this is what we refer to as being a fierce data interrogator, not a random data interrogator. So ultimately we think of this as jazz. Yeah, It's not waterfall because a lot of the behaviors in these different disciplines, product sales, marketing, manufacturing, tends to be rigid, tends to be a waterfall, and they don't read and react, to borrow a, a term from sports, they don't read and react in the moment. And ultimately, it needs to be jazz. You know the theme of your business, and you may go off in a different direction, but you'll come back. And the drummer's going to go and do something, and hopefully it fits in the context, and you're going to come back. So it's jazz. Go, go to the question, go to the technique that's valuable in that moment and don't just rely on kind of the rigid thinking. So when you talk about jazz, I'm imagining it like for marketing, we we launch a campaign and then we see how it did. And then we interrogate it in terms of we get some context, like, well, how, how well is that campaign performing based on general benchmarks, our historical other campaigns, our competitors, if we can know that, and then say, oh, wow, that's awesome. Let's double down the budget in this channel with this messaging to this segment, or uh-oh, that's very disappointing. Let's perhaps reallocate budget in, in a different vibe. And it's, so it's like jazz in that 
something happens and we respond in and flow to it as opposed to, nope, it says <laughs> in this quarter we're spending fifty thousand dollars right. on Facebook ads, and that's what we're doing. Right. Let let's go to the spreadsheet and say what I'm permitted to do. That yeah. that's not that's not thinking, that's reacting. Mm-hmm. Right. And that same marketing lead, marketing team, what you describe it as Monday morning. Wednesday morning, they have a different headline and their competitor just announced something that's shocking. So in one scenario, they're being proactive on a product launch in and seeing the results and then doubling down, as you said. In another scenario, they're suddenly under attack. And that was all in the same week. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how do you make decisions in those different situations, right? All right. And so I want to talk a little bit about your phrase, quantitative intuition. It sounds like you described a, a bit of that. But how do we get better at that in terms of this number feels high, wrong, low, crazy? Like How, how do we know that or get there? Right. Well, we, we, we try to not say crazy, but... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's really those three dimensions that I talked about at the end there. It's precision questioning, contextual analysis, and synthesis. So let's break all those down. Precision questioning, as I said before, we tend to react to the factoids and not take a step back and say, well, listen, let's put all this in context. What are the first principles? What are, what are the fundamentals of our company? Am I reacting to an anomaly? Or am I really making a decision based on a thought out element? And precision questioning is really a technique where you will ask, you know, I, I want to understand what to do with a millennial audience. Great. Could you say more? Well, I, I want to understand how to sell this product to a millennial audience. Any millennial audience? I want to understand how to sell this product to a millennial audience that has this kind of budget. You're asking more granular questions until you get to an atomic level that people say, oh, what you're really looking for is this well-defined decision, this Mm -hmm. well-defined task. And most often, we don't spend the time to get granular. And one of the techniques that we talk about to do that is we call it an IWIC framework, I wish I knew. And that just the nature of that question implies permission. What is it you want to know? What is it you want to know about that millennial? So spending the time, it requires a little patience, but spending the time up front to do that precision questioning, to narrow and get clear about it, to get concise about the thought is critically important. That's the first piece, precision questioning. The second piece is the contextual analysis. So as I said before, look at everything in context. What is the situation in absolute terms? What is it over time? What is it relative to what else is going on with my competitors, with other divisions in my company? And as you look at that context, you'll come to the realization, this is important to my business or not. This is a blip. Or this requires us to really consider a change to our strategy. And then the the last piece is the synthesis which almost no one does. Everyone summarizes and gives you every piece of information, and some of this is pride. Look, I spent three weeks putting together 47 incredible spreadsheets and reports. That's awesome. 
put that in the appendix and tell me what you learned from that. Tell me what's surprising you in that. Tell me what is crystallized that you, as a smart person that we hired into this company, believe based on what you've just interrogated. Most of the time, people bring that to their leader and say, look at all this work that I've done. And the way we like to think of synthesis is everybody is the director of a movie. If you look at a movie, maybe an hour and a half, two hours, right? There's what? Hundreds of hours on the cutting room floor because you don't have to tell every detail. You can put all that in an appendix, but focus on what's critical and what matters. In journalism, they talk about not burying the lead, being very critical about what is the most important aspect. And we get away from that in business. So you pull all that together, and that's what we refer to as quantitative intuition. And so we, we talk about a set of techniques to go through that. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, I'd love to hear, do you have some super favorite questions that you've relied upon and you find super valuable in many different decision-making contexts? So, yeah, it's a great question. And we've talked before about putting things in context, which I think is one incredible pillar. But one of my favorite questions is a very short question, which is, what surprised you? Mm -hmm. Real simple. And the, the fact is, if anyone has ever gone to a party, what happens when you leave the party? The people that you were at the party with don't talk about, well, yes, they had enough drinks, they had enough food. Well, that's not the conversation. It's mm -hmm. what surprised them about the interaction between people, what surprised them about a particular situation. So in our per personal life, we make the space and we give ourselves permission to have a conversation about surprise. But in the business world, no, no, no. The boss wants to talk about this. I have a sneaking suspicion that we should be interrogating this other dimension, but I'm not even going to bring it up. Yeah. So if you make the space for surprise, if you have the courage, or as a business leader, you ensure that your team feels empowered to say, yep, we're going to do the analysis that was asked for, but I'm going to make the space for surprise and say, this is an outlier that doesn't make sense. This is an outlier that I think we should interrogate more. Or really, we're investigating the wrong thing. And the surprising thing is, here's a critical issue. Mm -hmm. So be open to that surprise and make the space for that conversation. I love that question. Please, Paul, more like that. Yeah, it's we talked about IWIX, I wish I knew. That's probably mm -hmm. one of the most critical techniques that we talk about. And really, as I said before, you're, you're going back and forth between these various techniques, and you may find something in the surprise. This gets back to the jazz. When you have that surprise conversation, people can then say, oh, you know what? I want to go back and redefine the problem. I want to go back and maybe do a different set of, of IWICs to explore an area explore an adjacent area, explore a different area, because now I'm tuned a little differently. So really, it's a lot of back and forth with these techniques. We also talk very much about guesstimating, because at the end of the day, what we're taught from grammar school and up is, what's the answer? What's the number? 
And mathematical precision matters. You know, I'm an engineer by training. Everybody on the of the three authors were all technical, but guesstimating is really helpful. So the classic problem is, you know, how many piano tuners are there in Chicago? Well, you don't need a census to go do that. You can figure that out on the back of a napkin. And the majority of people are asked on a daily basis to provide an estimate on the back of a napkin. Well, what do you, what do you think? What, what's in the zone here? Because we can course correct once we know that we're in the zone. And they're at a loss for, well, how do I guesstimate? So we talk about a series of techniques around guesstimating. You bring me back to my case interview days, Paul. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> good times. All right. Well, so lots of good stuff. Could you bring it together in a cool example in terms of a person or a team used a number of these techniques from beginning to end to reach a fantastic decision? Sure. One other company, this is one of the other authors, uh, had this direct experience. So we will again mask the company to protect the innocent or goofy either way. Mm -hmm. But there was a question around what was the performance in uh, a region of, uh, again, Fortune 100 company. Uh, what was the performance in a region? And there were about 47 markets in the region. And looking through the region, they did the analysis, they looked at, they frankly looked at the IWICs and said, you know, here's what's important in the region, here's what we've discovered, and made their quarterly business recommendation on where to put more investment, how to align the team, and how to allocate the resources. At the end of the meeting, the senior leader said, uh, this is terrific, we really have our bearings here. Is there anything that surprised you in what you've seen so far? And this was Chris, Chris Frank said, yeah, you know, what really surprised me is there are 12 of the 47 segments had a sharp rise in customer satisfaction and I can't explain it. So what he did is he buried it in the appendix because it wasn't terribly clear and after a lot of time doing the correlation and the analysis, there was no answer to, to why. And so they were just outliers. So the leader said, so read off what those 12 markets were. And as he read through them, they mapped one for one with a pilot program that the company had in those 12 markets. And they intentionally didn't tell anybody because they didn't want to bias mm -hmm. anyone doing the, the analysis. And because of leaning into that simple question, what surprised you? The whole room had a revelation that, oh, we th this is really a better way to engage our customers. And that led to a multi-million dollar investment in a customer engagement program that didn't exist. So the data was all there. Yeah. But they weren't looking for it the right way. And they didn't have the insight from their leader to ask the right question. Now, if you use these techniques proactively, you would say, you know what? I'm going to spend 45 minutes on here's our quarterly, you know, business review, business report. I'm going to spend 10 minutes on here are some anomalies and surprises that I think we should investigate more. So as a practitioner, right? As a uh, business person, 
and you want to be awesome at your job, make the space for that, right? Insist that, you know what? You hired me for a reason. Here's something that I think we should really look at. Beautiful. Well, tell me, Paul, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we hear about some of your favorite things? Yeah, I think that the last piece is about as simple as it gets. When you're bringing people together, you need to tell them before they even get in the room, am I informing you of situations so everybody's up to speed and has a common knowledge base? Or am I compelling you to action today? Am I asking you to make a choice? And then have I armed you or in your team beforehand with everything to make that choice? I don't know how many meetings I'm in where partway through the meeting, people are now, because everybody texts during meetings, people are texting each other. What is the purpose of this? What are we doing? Didn't we already have this conversation? So being very deliberate is very much appreciated. And having a conversation for awareness is fantastic. But setting people up for a decision and bringing everybody along, that's really important because decisions are team sports. Bringing everybody along the right way really matters. All right. Thank you. Now, could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yeah, this is a favorite quote. I use it all the time. For every complex problem, there's an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. Mm -hmm. And so that's from H.L. Mencken, uh, who's a journalist in the early 1900s. And uh, to me, it speaks volumes of what we see today, where people have their fingertips on data and yet are just grasping at what seems to be the very first thing that they can answer with. And they're not spending the time to dive in to the detail. All right. And could you share a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Yeah, I think I'll share a book, which feels like a study. It's Thinking Fast and Slow yeah. by Daniel Kahneman, right? And so in some ways, our book, Decisions Over Decimals, echoes and builds on the system one and system two thinking. And we're providing practical tools and techniques that balance the data and the human judgment. Okay. And a favorite book? I'd have to go with The Road Less Traveled, the first version. I think he redacted or, or refuted some of what he said in his second version. But it's very much about understanding yourself and how to solve problems. Okay. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? Well, I'm partial to the Google tools. And then, of course, the techniques and frameworks that are in this book. Okay. And a favorite habit, something you do that makes you awesome at your job? I'm not a practitioner of meditation. But I think it's really important to get centered and take a step back and say, what's really happening? And I try and make the time to do that, ideally on a weekend, and really gather and reset. So however people do that, whether it's meditation or a night out dancing, it's whatever works for you. Okay. And is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks that quote it back to you often? I'm not sure it's retweeted, but I often say you can have your own opinions, but you can't have your own facts. Okay. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? Well, we have a, our website is DOD, which stands for Decisions Over Decimals. It's dodthebook.com. You can reach out to myself or Chris or Oded on LinkedIn. And obviously, we, uh, in, in addition to everything else that we do, we teach at Columbia. So multiple ways to get a hold of us. Okay. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs. Make the space to share what you really think. As I, I've said multiple times, synthesize. Don't just summarize. And create that space to have real dialogue on the issues. So many times 
that's what we want and that's not what we're doing and be brave and bold and make that space. All right, Paul, thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you many wise decisions. Thank you very much and to you as well. I love that question so much from Paul. What surprised you? (laughs) I think it's great to surface fun, new, interesting things that maybe you've never heard of. I think it's also great if you're not that interested (laughs) in what someone's talking about to say what surprised you is kind of a fun way to fast forward to the really potentially fun, interesting part that can get your brain moving in those fun directions. So a handy one for my repertoire for sure. I'll be using again and again. Those show notes, transcripts, and links are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP809. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.